We're going to look here at uh, Psalm 14. We just uh, finished, uh, we were alternating on Wednesdays from the book of Psalms with the book of Proverbs. And um, we took a pause from that and did a series on uh, having a good conscience before God. And if you missed that, I would encourage you to uh, you know, go back and listen uh, to those messages. I, I was helped by it by all that the Word of God has to say about the conscience. I hope it was a help and benefit to you as much as it was uh, to me. But we certainly want to exercise ourselves to have always a conscience that is void of offense toward God and toward men. Psalm 14, I'm going to read here in just a moment, but before we read, I want to make a number of observations. When I read this psalm, and then in conjunction with that, Psalm 53... My mind was already going in one direction, but as I began to study, uh, my direction was corrected, and it was corrected by God's Word. Have you ever done that? You come to a portion of the Bible, and you already knows what it means and what it's about, and then you discover it's not about that, uh, and there is uh, the application goes right back to you. You wanted to apply it to somebody else, but then it applies to you. That's what this psalm uh, does. Uh, let me, before we begin, uh, to, uh, let me make some general observations about this 14th psalm, and it could also be uh, some observation about Psalm 53. Uh, the first observation is this, that the idea that there is no God is not new to the 21st century. Uh, this thought evidently was prevalent in the time of David. This is not a new idea. The thought that there is no God. Uh, the second, and by the way, the reason I say that is because today people say, well, you don't understand. We were modern people now, and we uh, have uh, a lot of books, and we study science. And, and the idea today is, well, because we are so advanced, we understand things that people didn't understand then. And the reason why we say today that men proclaim that there is no God is really something that's new and modern and better. And we find that's actually not the case at all. The thought has always been around uh, from the very beginning. Uh, the second observation we, I want us to make is that we have to make a distinction between the imaginations of men and the certainties of men. We have to make a distinction. Uh, there are, in this psalm he says, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. That is man's imagination. It is not man's certainty. It's what he says in his heart. Uh, and we have to make the distinction today that often people come to conclusions not because they are certain of those conclusions, but because they want those conclusions to be true. And so it's man's imaginations and not man's certainties. So we make a distinction between those two. The third observation is that the fool is the man who has made a decision in his heart and not in his mind. Uh, you see, it is the heart in this psalm that controls a man's thinking. Uh, the idea that there is no God does not spring from logic. It is a thought that springs entirely from the wickedness of the heart. 
And we have to make a distinction. So people that say today there is no God, and I'm going to explain this, but that say that there is no God, that deduction does not spring from logic and from a man's mind. It springs from the wickedness of his heart. And we have to be very clear about that. Uh, the world has an emphasis today is that if you are educated, you will come to this conclusion. But much conclusions that are made today come from the wickedness of the heart. And as Christians, we, we understand that. I hope we, we understand that. The fourth observation is this, that this psalm is universal in its application. Uh, it is to be applied to all men. And I say this purposely because as I began reading the psalm, I thought, oh, let's talk about those who are atheists, who say in their heart there is no God. But if you look at the psalm, he says... There is none that doeth good, no, not one. So actually we can't limit this psalm to a specific group of people. This psalm is universal in its application. Uh, this is true because of the references in this psalm itself. Uh, we'll see that in just a moment. But also because of the references in the New Testament to this psalm actually apply this psalm universally to all men. Uh, but human nature is often that, oh, well, here's a psalm and this is not about me. And actually, it's quite the opposite. It's about all of us. And so those are the preliminary uh, observations. Uh, so let's stand together for the reading of this psalm. It's seven verses. We're going to uh, spend the majority of our time on the first three verses this evening. But Psalm 14, verse 1 the Word of God says, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor, because the Lord is his refuge." Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. I'd like to bring your attention to the first words of this psalm. The fool hath said in his heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening, and we ask your blessing on the study of this psalm. Lord, by your Spirit, through the study of your Word, may we come to a clear understanding of ourselves, of mankind as a whole, and on the inclinations and the tendencies of the heart. Lord, help us to be fully aware about what this psalm teaches us about ourselves. And may we be on guard as we think about the truths uh, that will be found in there. 
And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we look at the psalm, I really would like to um, spend some time to try to establish and uh, define really the first part of the psalm. I'll probably uh, spend next week talking about the second part of the psalm, but I really want to spend some time establishing some truths about the first part of the psalm, keeping in mind some of the observations uh, that I mentioned. And namely this, that God is, the idea that there is no God or the thought that there is no God is not new to the 21st century. We make a distinction between imaginations and certainties and also that the decisions that is made here is a decision that's made in the heart, not the mind, and that this psalm is to be applied in a universal way to all men. The first words as we open this psalm is, the fool, the fool. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Uh, As we look at those uh, first two words, maybe it might uh, spring our mind to uh, desire to study. Okay, well, in the Bible, if we study the truth or the idea of a fool, what is to be our understanding of a fool? Now, there might be some things that might be obvious to us, but here the reason I say that is because in the psalm itself, we think here, connect, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. We know here that the Bible says here, he says in his heart, there is no God. And I want us to be careful to not think here and not to go into the direction and say, okay, well, now we are talking about the atheist. I don't think so. Now, it could apply to the atheist, but the application of this psalm, as we just saw in the first three verses, is really universal and applies to all men. What we need to learn here is what is the tendency of the heart? the direction of the heart. And we're going to find here, the psalm doesn't say, the fool is the one who does not believe in God. That's not what a fool is. A fool is a person who says in his heart, there is no God. Notice it is not audible. He says it in his heart. The thought springs from the heart. It doesn't spring from the intellect. It springs from the heart. Now, I'll mention that. But let's spend some time here talking about the fool. If you would do a word study on the fool, you would do a word search in the, the Old Testament, and you would go to the, where is this word first mentioned? Does it apply to, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, to someone who said there was no God? And you're going to find that that's not the case. If you turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, let's look at the first mention of the the first use of the word fool in the Old Testament, and we would come to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 32. So notice with me, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 32, just so we know uh, the timeline here, we, uh, this is the end of The latter portion of the book of Deuteronomy, uh, God brought the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. We're preaching through the book of Exodus Sunday night. Uh, He uh, 
brought them out through great deliverance. We're currently at Mount Sinai where God speaks to them from the mount, but they're headed to the promised land. Now we know that when they get there, they're not going to go into the promised land. There's going to be, uh, you know, 10, uh, 12 spies. 10 are going to give an evil report, say we can't take the land. Two, uh, Caleb and Joshua are going to give a good report, say we can take the land. Uh, well, we know God, because of their unbelief, Hebrews 3 says, because of the hardness of their heart and their unbelief, they did not enter into the land. And so God took them through uh, 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And uh, a new generation is coming now, and they're going to enter into the land. The old generation has passed away. The new generation is coming, and they're about to enter into the land. The book of Deuteronomy is really, in a sense, the preparation for the next generation, some warnings some instructions, some things that they ought to do when they get into the land. And uh, Moses himself is not going to enter, but he has the privilege of passing on that instruction to that next generation that is going to enter the land. Now notice uh, Deuteronomy 32. Uh, we have to read, before we get to that word, uh, we have to read kind of the context. What is he talking about? What, what's the subject at hand? Deuteronomy 32, let's begin reading in verse 1. Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass. Because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. How many of you children know that song? You've sung that song before? Uh, no? How many of you adults have sung that song? That No? Okay, maybe you are sleeping. How many of you have sung the song from that verse before? No? Okay, we're going to have to teach that song. Uh, I'm not going to try now because I know I'm going to butcher it. I'm going to have to find the music, and we need to, it's good to sing that verse, verse 3. Uh, he is our rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are judgments, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. And we ought to say amen to that. They, verse 5, have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Do ye thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Is not he thy father that hath, that hath bought thee? Hath he not made thee and established thee? Now who is he talking to? Who is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the children of Israel in the words that he uses. Notice we might say here when he says, O foolish people and unwise, is not thy father he that bought thee? Well, they were redeemed from Egyptian bondage. Uh, Hath he not made thee? And here he's talking about as a nation, did he not make you and established you? Well, of course he did. God did that. Okay? Verse 7. Now, now by the way, if you notice some of the theme in this verse, Psalm 14 verse 1 says, The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They have corrupted themselves. What does he say to them? Verse 5, they have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. 
And so he's talking to the children of Israel. Verse 7, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father and he will show thee. Thy elders and they will tell thee. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance... When he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bonds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the waste hallowing wilderness. He led him about. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. He's talking about the children of Israel. As an eagle stirreth up her nest, fluttereth over her young, spreadeth abroad her wings, taketh them, beareth them on her wings. By the way, reference back to Exodus chapter 19 when he says, you remember what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Here he gives the details. They were in the land of Egypt. And by the way, they were uh, pagans at that time because the Bible, the, book, the Bible tells us that God told them to forsake the God of the Egyptians and they would not. They became a pagan people there and so God made them uncomfortable through the wilderness, just like a mother eagle stirs up the nest and makes it uncomfortable so that the young flies out and when the young flies out, when they left the land, God bare them on eagles' wings. They come to the Red Sea, God opens it up, they walk as on dry land. They come into the desert place where there's no water, God changes the water of Mara to sweet from bitter. Uh, there is no uh, bread to eat in the desert. God brings them manna from heaven. And so God, on and on, as they seem to falter, God every single time bore them on His wings. This is how God, what God did for them. And He says in verse 12, So the Lord alone did lead him, and there was no strange God with him. He made him ride on the high places of the earth and he, that he might eat the increase of the fields. And he made him to suck honey out of the rock and oil out of the uh, uh, flinty rock, butter of kin and milk of sheep and fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats with the fat of kidneys of wheat. And thou didst drink the pure blood of the grape. He goes on. Uh, but let's go down to... Uh, well, keep, let's keep reading. We're almost at verse 21. Verse 15, but Jeshurun waxed fat. It's a, it's another, Jeshurun is another name for the children of Israel. You find that throughout the Old Testament. And kicked, thou art waxen fat, thou art grown thick, thou art covered with fatness. Then he forsook God, which made him, and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. Who is he talking about, the children of Israel? We have one example we could think about. Moses was delaying on the Mount Sinai and... As he was delaying, the people said Moses was not coming back. And so they asked Aaron, uh, and they made a golden calf. And you remember what Aaron said. He said, these are the gods that have brought you out of the land of Egypt. God had provided for them all along. Only God had done that. And they lightly esteemed God. Verse 16. They provoked him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations, provoked they him to anger. By the way, when he says they left with no gods, back in verse 12, no kidding, God had defeated all their gods in Egypt. He had left Egypt a barren wasteland. And then they lively esteem the rock of their salvation and they 
made themselves their own gods. Verse 17, they sacrificed unto devils, not to God, the gods whom they knew not, to new gods that came newly up, whom your fathers feared not, of the rock that begat thee, begat thee thou art unmindful and hast forgotten God that formed thee. And when the Lord saw it, he abhorred them because of the provoking of his sons and of his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be. Uh, for they are a very froward generation, children of whom is no faith. They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities and I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Twice the word is used in this chapter foolish. The first time, back in verse 6, Do ye thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? So the first time that word is used in the Old Testament it's referring to the children of Israel who knew God. The second time it is used, it is used of a pagan nation that does not know God. And he says of both of them, you are foolish. The nation that knew God, they are foolish in that they forsook God. The unwise and foolish nation, that pagan nation is a foolish nation because they did not know God. And so in both cases, God uses the same word. We think of Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The first time God uses this word, God uses that word, of a group of people is to the children of Israel and to a pagan nation. I'm going to give you one more thought about that word, go with me to the book of Job. The book of Job. The book of Job in chapter 2. The book of Job chapter 2 and <clears throat> notice with me verse 9 and 10. So Job uh, lost uh, everything. The last thing that comes down upon him is the the boils from the crown of his head to the bottom of his feet. And verse 9, his dear wife, the encourager that she was, then said his wife unto him, verse 9, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Well, what, what, what is she saying? If there was a God, he would have taken care of you. Curse God and die. There is no God. Curse His name and just die. She knew out of any people that Job was a faithful man. If anybody knew of Job's faithfulness to God, it would have been his wife. Notice what Job says to his wife, but he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. Now, in the mind of Job, he says, he didn't say, you're a fool. He says, you speak like a foolish woman speaks. Well, Job would have been acquainted with other women where he lived. And evidently, there was a group of women that he would ascribe those who would curse God. 
who would say there is no God. And in that very moment, he says, you're just like one of those foolish women. By the very words that you say, curse God and die. In that moment of being overwhelmed, and I'm not trying to be too hard on Job's wife. She went through the same thing without the health, but she went through everything that Job went through apart from his health. So let's not think here that she's she's gone through a difficult time herself. But in that moment, in that moment, what springs from her heart is there is no God. There can't be any God if this would happen to you. Look at what God has done to you. So as we think about, go back to Psalm 14, as we think about the subject of or the title of a fool, we see that it doesn't just apply to in our minds because it is not applied in the mind of God, that it doesn't just apply to a man who is an atheist, who denies the existence of God. It applies to something that is rooted in the heart of man when he departs from God, when he refuses to acknowledge God, when he has difficult circumstances in his life, and he says, I just don't see how there could be a God unless we be so hard and say, well, that's not me. Let's be very careful that we say that of ourselves, that I would never say anything like that. We're going to find in this psalm that this is something that is expressed in the sentiment of the heart, not a reasonable conclusion. Now, I could spend some time. We did a few years back a whole... Uh, did a seminary on creation and science. And we talked about some of the evidence and the arguments and all those things. And that, that was a wonderful thing. And we're talking about the mind and science and touching all of those subjects. But this is not what this is about. This is not about weighing the evidence of whether there's a God or not. This is about examining the position of the heart. The thoughts that spring out from the heart of man, not by reason, but by what the heart wants, by what the heart craves after. So we find here that in the Old Testament, the word fool is used in that broad sense to the children of Israel, to pagan nation, uh, to uh, here, evidently, a, a woman who Uh, believed God just like Job, but in those difficult circumstances thought there can be no God, just curse God and die. Uh, If we go to the New Testament, let me make one brief reference to what Jesus said. Uh, And now let me just mention it. Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 12 is uh, preaching about to his disciples and he says, beware of covetousness. I I talked about that because I preached on covetousness Sunday night. But he's teaching his disciples about covetousness and then he gives them a parable of the rich man. And you remember... Uh, the rich man had uh, great barns, and he uh, says, what will I do with those barns? I'll tear them down, I'll build greater. Uh, then he'll say, take that knees, eat, drink, and be merry. And you remember, he says, and, and God, and he will say to my soul, uh, thou hast much goods laid up for many years, and all those things, take that knees, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said, thou fool, thou fool. In that reference, the fool here is is the man really who is covetous, but in this is what happens because of a, of a covetousness. The life of a fool is the life where God is excluded. That's the life of a fool. 
God in Luke 12 has been substituted. If you listen to the message on covetousness, that's why covetousness is called idolatry. Because it is a substitution. You make uh, riches your God. And so covetous, uh, covetousness becomes idolatry. And so God has been substituted with the riches of this world. But also God has been completely excluded. Because in that portion, Jesus said, a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. That's not what life is about. And he sees that in that rich man, in his life, God has been entirely excluded. He's been substituted by covetousness, but then he's been entirely excluded from the decision that he makes in his life. He does not regard God as the judge of his soul. He regards his life and his accomplishment as the judge of what he ought to be. And so the fool is the man who is covetous, who has substituted God for something else, in Luke 12, covetousness, and who has entirely excluded God out of his life on earth. He doesn't say anything about not believing in God. He does, just doesn't consider God in his decisions. And God says, what about your soul? Uh, there's one more thing we know about the fool, and we are going through the book of Proverbs with the book of Psalms. Well, the book of Proverbs is a book that weighs the wise against the fool. And from the very beginning, he opens the book of Proverbs in Proverbs 1-7. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In chapter 9, he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But then he says, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so according to the Bible, the fool is the man that does not fear God. The man that does not fear God. The book of Proverbs was written when Solomon is able to give forth the wisdom that he received from God. He strayed away from God. The book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon in his old age looking back at his foolish years and here's the conclusion he comes to at the end. He says, here's the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. What happened to Solomon was not that his wisdom somehow dissipated. That's not what happened. He ceased to fear God. And as a result, he became a fool. That's why Proverbs says that the fear of God is the beginning. You have to have that. It must be part of your life. So, a man can be wise and know all the truths of the book of Proverbs. Memorize them. Quote them. But if that man does not fear God, he's a fool. So, Psalm 14, verse 1, when it says, the fool, let's not exclude ourselves. Let's not exclude ourselves from that word. The fool, the Bible says, hath said in his heart. When we think about, uh, actually it was uh, Psalm 10, just a few 
Psalms before in Psalm 10 verse 40 says, The wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all of his thoughts. He's not in all of his thoughts. And here notice he says that's, that's what the wicked does. Now, when we think about the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. This is not his, when, when we see that, it doesn't say that the fool is the one who's come to the conclusion after much effort and reasoning. No, the fool, which what is what gives him the definition of a fool, is someone who is entirely, uh, who entirely makes his decisions based upon the whims of his heart. Something happens in his heart that causes him to say something in his heart. That's why we define him as a fool. As a fool, he has said in his heart, and so we have to understand here what it, what God is laying out here. It is not here when he says there is no God. When the Bible says the fool has said in his heart, it is not that he has come to this conclusion based upon reasonable judgment. But he has come to this thought based upon his imagination. You see, it is not that he knows that there is no God. Rather, it is that he wishes there were no God. And there's a big difference. You see, that thought, although unlikely that there is no God, suits his fancy. It suits what, what he would like. It suits what his heart wants. Uh, what his heart wants. You see, the fool loves to be entertained by the thought that there is no accountability. That's, that's the fool's heart. He loves to be entertained by the thought that there is no accountability. You see, the fool here does not even say this audibly. The fool, he says, has said in his heart. He says this in the secret recesses of his heart. That's what he yearns after. That's what he wishes could be. So that there is no restraint. So that there is no boundaries. You see, this is the root, truly the root cause of all wickedness in the world. The commentator said, he says, no man will say there is no God till he is so hardened in sin that it has become his interest that there should be none to call him to account. By the way, we find that all the way back in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Bible shows us that God, when he looks at man, he doesn't just see his acts, but God gives us an insight into the heart of man and shows us where the trouble with man is. Genesis 6, verse 5. And God saw the wickedness of man in the earth, that it was great, that it was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thought of his... What's the word? Heart. His heart is the trouble. Was only evil continually. What is to be blamed for his acts of wickedness? It is his heart. When Jeremiah the prophet was sent to Jerusalem to preach, 
Oh, he preached. And when he preached, he preached about the heart. He said this in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 14. Oh, Jerusalem, wash thine heart from wickedness, that thou mayest be saved. How long shall thy, his voice says, how long shall thy vain thoughts lodge within thee? Here's what we have to understand about the world and how the world works. The world does think, but the world's thoughts are dictated by the wickedness of the heart. You see, what man does, he doesn't do because he's come to a reasonable position. He comes to because he's been motivated and influenced by the wickedness of his heart. Jeremiah 4.18, he says this, Thy way and thy doings have procured these things unto thee. This is thy wickedness, because it is bitter, because it reacheth into thine heart. He tells them, where does your wickedness come from? Where have you attained those things? Your wickedness, your bitterness can be traced back down deep to the recesses of your heart. That's where it comes from. Now we know Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? What did Jesus say in Mark 7, 21? For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts. Adulteries, for, and then he lists a bunch of things. But he says, they proceed, they originate, they spring out of, they find their life, their motivation in the heart. In the heart. By the way, it was in Romans 1, 21, when Paul explains the state of the world, that he says, because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish hearts was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became what? Fools. Ah, it is not that they don't believe God. They already know God. But they refuse to acknowledge Him. They refuse to thank Him. They become vain in their imagination. Their foolish heart says, there is no God. Why? Because that's what the heart wants. There is no judge over me. There is no one that's going to tell me what to do. There is no God. There is no judge over the world. There is no governor who presides over the affairs of men. I am my own man. I make my own decision. I will be accountable to no one. Well, we can... We can all be in that very same position. By the way, even as Christians. You say, Pastor, how could you say that? I've been around too long to have met Christians who were involved in wickedness and sin. And when confronted, says you ought not to do that, say, I don't care. How can that be? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You see, I believe the psalm is teaching this. The fool is not the man who has come to the conviction that there is no God. The fool is the man who wishes there were none. 
That's the fool. He wishes there were none because he knows that if there is a God and that his heart becomes convinced that there is a God, that he will, can no longer indulge in sin without consequence. The Bible, you know, speaks of a double heart. Uh, it speaks of the heart. The idea there is that the man knows God. He hears God. He sits under the preaching of God's word. But he lives as if there were none. He hears it. Uh, James put this this way. Be you doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving your own selves. <laughs> and there it is. It's a fool who says there is no God. I hear what God says. I know what God wants me to do. But I'm going to live my life as if there were no God. As if when I live the course of my life, I will never meet God in the end. That's a fool. That's a fool. No accountability. No God. That's the inclination of the heart. If you turn with me to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews chapter 3. <clears throat> Let's begin reading in verse 7. Now, <clears throat> remember we read in Deuteronomy, he references back those generations, how God brought them, and so forth. And Hebrews chapter 3 gives us an insight into what went on. How come the children of Israel did not enter into the promised land? What prevented them from going into the promised land? And here, he uses the illustration of that account in the Old Testament in that modern day when the believers, these Hebrew Christians, were struggling at that day, and he challenges them just like they were challenged in the Old Testament. And he says this in Hebrews 3, verse 7. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When So what happened? Verse 9, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, they do always err in their, what? Hearts. Not, not their behavior, not their wickedness. That's the product of erring in the heart. But the seed, where's, where's the origination from? It's in the heart. They err in their heart. And they have not known my ways. Now, it's, isn't it interesting that he says, they, verse 9, they saw my works 40 years. And then in verse 10, he says, they have not known my ways. Well, which is it? Have, have they seen the work of God? Yes, they did. But they don't know the way of God. How can you not know the way of God? Because the heart errs. The heart goes a different... The heart begins to, although the heart knows that there is a God, he can't come to a logical conclusion. It doesn't spring from the mind. It springs from the heart. The heart at its root is wicked. It goes away from God. And so, all of a sudden, when the heart prevails to lead your thoughts, 
then you will say there is no God. I'm going to live as if there were no God, even though I know His way. I've seen His work. But I don't know His way. Uh, how could we not say, when it says, and they have not known my ways, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God? Verse 11. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you. Okay, so let's bring it forward now to them at that time, but even to us. That's who he's writing to, to brethren, to believers, to saints. Uh, he says there could be also in you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And what he says, it's not that you deny God, it's not that you're not saved, it's that you, 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 go, you proceed to live your life as if from now on, no accountability, no God in my life. So, he says, verse 13, But exhort one another daily what it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Well, there it is. What hardens the heart? The deceitfulness of sin. The heart is at its core desperately wicked. It seeks out the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It is not of the Father, but it is of the world. It draws us. And when we are drawn by it and we uh, give ourselves to its influence, the heart hardens. And then because the heart is hardened, the heart wishes that there was no accountability. The heart wishes that there is not a, a day of judgment coming. He says, verse 14, For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. By the way, he's not talking here in this context. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about rest. Christian rest. But we're to make the distinction or else you're not going to read this chapter correctly. For some, verse 16, when they have heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Do you see what it says? They did not enter in because of unbelief. You mean the same people that God brought out of by the Passover out of Egypt, that passed through the Red Sea, that saw the manna come down from heaven, the, uh, tasted the water of Marah, that turned from bitter to sweet, that saw the water that proceeded out of the rock? Uh, you mean these same people that saw all that were in unbelief? How did they get to that place of unbelief where they said, in the foolish heart, there is no God. Because of the heart. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There is no God. There is no judge over the world. There is no governor who presides over the affairs of men. Romans 1.28 says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. So they had a knowledge of God. They, did, they just didn't want to retain it. God gave them over. So let me finish with this and my time has expired. So let's, let me finish with what he says in verse 1. Psalm 14. Verse 
verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. So we see first what he is. He is corrupt. So the man who says what he says, that's what he is. He is in the condition of corruption. That's what he is. Then we see what he does. They have done abominable works. That's the result of what he is. We see then what he does. And by the way, if we want to touch a little bit on atheism today, uh, that goes along with atheism, does it not? That if there is no God, then you can live as you please. Right? Atheism, if you take it to its full extent, then you, there is no accountability. You can live as an animal, and there is nobody that can prevent you from doing that. J.K. Chesterton once said, that it is often supposed that when people stop believing in God, they believe in nothing. Alas, it is worse than that. When they stop believing in God, they believe in anything. Dostoevsky, I hope I said his name correctly, but he remarked that if God does not exist, everything is permissible. Now, that's... Atheism, we understand it, but I want to bring it down to us today that also can happen in the life of a Christian. That as soon as he allows his heart to dictate his thinking, the heart is wicked. As soon as he allows his heart to dictate his thinking, everything is permissible. And by the way, Christians spend a lot of time today looking throughout the Bible to find ways to justify their behavior. I'm God. I'm not going to let God tell me what to do. I'm God. And they like to couch things in a beautiful bow. God is love. Doesn't matter what I do, God loves me. See how they wrap that in a bow? You're right, God loves you. And he'll forgive you all. You're right about that. But he sure doesn't want you to live as you please. But that type of philosophy can influence the Christian. I want us to think about this psalm in this term as we examine our own hearts that we can all at some point in our lives get into that position where we become fools. Fools. I've given this illustration before, and the reason why I give this illustration is because it, had, it taught me so many things. So I hope you don't get weary of that story. But I remember after I got saved, I was eight years old, and <clears throat> we went to Awana Club, on Wednesdays, and I saw on the bleachers a nice, thick Bible that was sitting there. I had a Bible, but I wanted that Bible. That's spiritual, isn't it, of me? To want a Bible, a bigger Bible, so I can read better, you know? 
Do we see how quickly the heart can turn? And all just begin to justify things? Begin to say, you can go that direction. You're not thinking rationally. Your heart is dictating your thoughts. I grabbed that Bible. I looked inside. I didn't pay attention to whose name was in there. But I crossed the name out. And I put my name in it. And then we went through the Awana Club, did the different classrooms, met scripture memory, got lesson. And then we go to the final assembly where we get everybody together. I was talking to my friends, hey, look at my new Bible, look at my new Bible. Acting all spiritual, because I had a big, thick Bible. The youth pastor gets up. The youth pastor gets up and says, Has anybody seen my Bible? And I go, What is that? That right there is, There is no God. As long as man doesn't see. As long as man doesn't see what I do. Nobody's going to hold me accountable. I can do what I want. So figured out a way to get away. My friends on the way out of the General Assembly said, Hey, the Bible you had, is that, is that not his Bible? No. No. Lying. There is no God. Finally, I got the perfect plan. I was going to put the Bible in the bathroom so that somebody would find it and so that, it, you know, it probably somebody would think, well, he misplaced it in the bathroom. So I put the Bible in there and I forgot. I put my name in it. <laughs> my dad uh, got word. They found out my name was in it. Nobody told me. But they called my dad and they... My dad came one day and he asked me. I remember first day he said, Hey, son, did, did you steal a Bible? And I just remember as clear as day. I said, Dad, why would I steal a Bible? The Bible says thou shalt not steal. <laughs> he actually he let it go. He didn't even deal with me that day. The next day he asked me the same question. Did you steal a Bible? I probably gave the same reply. Day three finally came. And he says, son, did you steal a Bible? But you know, all that time, what, what, what was that type of life? That type of life was there is no God. Now, I wouldn't have said I don't believe in God, but I sure was acting like it. And when I went in the, into the room with my dad after I said, I stole the Bible, he says, all right, go in the bedroom. And I got, I got spanked. And I'm grateful I did. But the most painful thing was when my dad says, now you're going to go in front of the whole General Assembly and you're going to tell them what you did. That was worse. I said, can I get another spanking? I don't want to. <laughs> Nobody at that time in my life would have been able to convince me by reason that there is no God. 
but I sure was living like there was no God. Like there was no judge, no accountability. And I remember the verse that my dad shared with me in the book of Proverbs. Be sure your sin will find you out. I don't remember all the words my dad said, but he says, God made certain, son, that you wrote your name in the Bible so that you could be discovered and so that you could learn a lesson that you're not going to get away with sin. And that was one of the most wonderful lessons I've ever learned. It is only a fool's heart that lives as if there was no God. That is the thought that springs from the wickedness of the heart.